listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. I report to you from a secret COVID zombie-proof bunker. On my way here, I left a gooey, mangled mass of their bodies piled up outside. And I'm ready to report that I'm okay. And I'm here to talk to you. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this episode out. You see, it seems that my recording software went, as my Brit friends are fond of saying, tits up. But I think I've got a handle on it now, and it's back to the normal routine. Next up, the Forgotten War, the Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 3. Last time, I finished by teasing that the African-American Buffalo soldiers were shipped out to Cuba the day after a violent race riot between them and local inhabitants of Tampa, Florida. But I cryptically hinted that they didn't really ship out. What really happened is that they were put on six transport ships in Tampa Harbor and confined to the lowest deck on each one. There was no lighting, other than what came through a single hatch, poor ventilation, and the bunks were stacked in four tiers that were crammed so close together that the men had to turn sideways to scoot between them. The beds were wooden frames with no mattresses, and there was nowhere to stow gear and personal possessions other than on the bunk. Now that included clothes, tents, weapons, and ammunition. Each ship had only a single toilet in the lowest deck for 1,200 men, and no bathing facilities. Keep in mind that this was in Florida in June, and of course, it was before air conditioning. All of this was bad enough, but after the black soldiers boarded the ships, those ships sat in the harbor for 15 days. There were white soldiers boarded on the upper decks in much better conditions, and they were allowed to go ashore whenever they wished. The black soldiers were not permitted to, quote, intermingle, unquote, with the white troops. As I said, they had to endure this for 15 days, but then the ships sailed for Cuba and war. Meanwhile, Teddy Roosevelt and his 1st Volunteer Cavalry Regiment were also shipping out for Cuba. But here's the first case where the history you think you know about the Spanish-American War might be wrong. The transportation of men and supplies was so badly planned that it turned out that there was no room for horses on the transport ships, with a few exceptions. Only senior officers could bring horses. It turns out that the rough riders would be rough walkers. In any case, all of the American invasion force finally, actually, got underway. Part of the north coast of Cuba is only 90 miles away from Florida, 
So at first glance, it seemed logical to land there. But of course, the Spanish could read a map too. It was decided that the fleet of transport ships, accompanied by a powerful squadron of warships, would steam clockwise around Cuba and disembark the troops on the southern coast, near Cuba's second largest city, Santiago, or more properly, Santiago de Cuba. The trip was uneventful, but the landing, not so much. The technology for landing troops on a hostile shore was not very advanced in 1898. With the backdrop of huge naval guns pounding enemy positions inland, the troops were loaded onto rowboats in choppy seas and painstakingly rowed to the beach. One of the boats capsized near the shore, and two Buffalo soldiers from the 10th Cavalry went under, pulled down by their heavy clothing and heavier gear. A captain from the Rough Riders jumped into the water in an attempt to save the first two, but he was pulled under as well. Three men died before ever hearing a Spanish shot fired. One tiny note of hope from this tragedy, at least not every white American was a racist asshole in 1898. It took two days to row all the troops ashore. They camped in and around the sleepy village of Daiquiri. Yes, that's exactly where the name of the popular cocktail comes from. Americans returning from Cuba after the Spanish-American War created and named it for this little sleepy town. Once assembled, the invading force had to make it through 18 miles of mountainous jungle to get to Santiago, where the main Spanish force in the south of Cuba was preparing to dig in. Commanding the American forces in Cuba was General William Shafter, a Civil War hero who had been awarded the Medal of Honor for Valor in Combat. The intervening years, however, had not treated him well. He was grossly overweight and in constant agony from a case of gout. So he commanded from aboard a warship in Santiago Harbor. He never went ashore. In stark contrast to General Shafter, one of the ranking officers among the troops who actually landed was Fightin' Joe Wheeler. Aged 61 at the time, Wheeler had also served in the Civil War. As a general, in his 20s, in the Confederate Army. Now, I'm not sure what Wheeler thought about being in command of African-American soldiers. I searched pretty hard to find out, but I couldn't get any results. That's just a bit like a German general joining the Israeli army after World War II and being in command of Jewish troops. The first serious obstacle that the Americans encountered was a crossroad on a hill that the Spanish had fortified with fallen trees and trenches. The hill, and the battle that was to come, was called Las Guasimas. General Wheeler's plan was to send a separate column of men up each road approaching the crossroads. Wood and Roosevelt were to take the Rough Riders up the more westerly road, and the Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th Cavalry, and white troopers of the 1st Regular Cavalry, all on foot of course, were to take the road that lay to the east. The idea was that the regular troopers would frontally assault the enemy position, and then the Rough Riders would slam into their flank. But events were not destined to go the way Fightin' Joe Wheeler planned. The Rough Riders in particular would not live up to their name, 
and in more than one way. First of all, they did do something resembling training in preparation for deploying to Cuba. But it consisted mostly of riding, shooting, and quite a lot of partying, with very little in the way of marching, not to mention while carrying a heavy load in a tropical jungle. Their behavior made it clear that they looked upon war as an entertaining adventure, like a vacation. Teddy Roosevelt, who was powerfully interested in media coverage of his exploits, had handpicked about a half-dozen newspaper reporters to accompany him along the trail. The two regular army units split off from the Rough Riders and got onto the eastmost road. The Rough Riders continued to the westmost one. Most of them had started their day by fortifying their courage with liberal doses of Cuban rum, and they began to make their way up the assigned road, which was really only a steep jungle trail, like a band of revelers on their way to a party, shouting, singing, arguing, and generally doing their imitation of a bull in a china shop. The veteran soldiers on the other road could hear them. They had started their day quietly, contemplatively, even meditatively, checking and cleaning their weapons and gear, as soldiers had done before battle from time immemorial. The two columns began their approach in the relative cool of the morning. But before long, the fact that it was a sunny day in June, in Cuba, began to take its toll. The Buffalo soldiers and the white regulars were in combat shape, but the Rough Riders most decidedly were not. They quickly began to tire as the day grew warmer and the uphill slope grew steeper. Their pace of advance slowed, and a significant number of them even dropped out of formation from exhaustion. Before they ever made contact with the Spanish, more than 50 of the 500 volunteers were sitting or lying sprawled behind the rest along the trail. As those still on their feet drew closer to the Spanish, they could hear each side begin firing a few light artillery pieces. The first contact the Rough Riders had with the enemy came soon after this in the form of a volley of rifle fire that passed over their heads. In the dense jungle foliage, they were unable to make out the enemy. This was partly due to an advance in military technology. While the Spanish Navy lagged behind the American Navy when it came to modernity, the Spanish army carried weapons that were superior to those of the Americans. The Spaniards were firing Mauser rifles that used advanced smokeless powder. This means that when they fired the rifle in combat, no enemy could easily mark their position. The Krag rifles used by the Americans fired black powder rounds that bellowed a distinctive plume of smoke out the muzzle with each shot, clearly indicating to opponents where the shot had come from. These Spanish Mausers were also capable of a higher rate of sustained fire than the American Crags because of a more efficient reloading system. To make things worse, the next volley from the hidden Spaniard sharpshooters was zeroed in, hitting many of the Rough Riders. Then they began taking fire from their flank as well as from the front. Lots of the volunteers were hit, and before too long, some of them were killed or badly wounded. Just how many were killed and wounded, I'll get to later. It was clear that they had walked into an ambush. To their credit, the Rough Riders behaved gallantly. 
slowly but bravely advancing, seeking cover where and when they could in the face of withering fire with no targets of their own to fire upon. They had brought along some machine guns, some early primitive machine guns, but the mules that were carrying them up the steep mountain trail panicked and bolted under the heavy enemy gunfire, dropping the guns and damaging them beyond immediate repair. Meanwhile, on the easterly road, the Buffalo soldiers of the 10th Cavalry and the men of the 1st were engaged in a heavy firefight of their own, and both sides were taking heavy casualties in that half of the battle. After what must have seemed like an eternity, reinforcements began to arrive. The Buffalo soldiers of the 9th Cavalry joined the fray, quickly moving up the right flank, where they began firing at the Spaniards from their left flank, inflicting immediate casualties. Meanwhile, the Spanish, whose machine guns were working just fine, directed them towards the reinforcements. A battle that was already hot was heating up. A group of Buffalo soldiers from the 10th Cavalry moved across to the left through withering fire to take up a position in front of the Rough Riders, between the Rough Riders and the Spaniards. The advance of the Rough Riders had been slowed to a crawl. This brave maneuver caused the black troopers to take fire that had earlier been directed at Teddy Roosevelt's volunteers, saving lots of their lives. Perhaps even Mr. Roosevelt's life. The history of the world in the upcoming decade would have played out quite differently if he had perished on that hot June day in the Cuban jungle. In any case, the regular army troopers continued to push forward all along the front, despite intense enemy fire thick foliage, and suddenly appearing wire fences that had to be climbed over, cut through, or gone around. Eventually, those still alive made it to the crest of the hill, approaching hand-to-hand -hand range. Before that type of combat could occur, though, the Spanish defenders quickly abandoned their fortified positions and retreated towards Santiago. General Wheeler experienced an awkward senior moment, shouting, We've got the damn Yankees on the run again! When I read this, I thought it was really funny. But then I did the math, and I realized that Fightin' Joe was a year younger during this battle than I am as I record this podcast. Maybe I shouldn't make fun. In any case, the Battle of Las Guasimas was over. It was a tactical victory for the Americans because they finished the battle in possession of the field. But at what cost? Well, this is where the history gets interesting. My research revealed wildly conflicting accounts about the casualties taken by the Americans at the Battle of Las Guasimas. As always, history is written by the victors. But my digging came up with some interesting details. And I'll tell you all about them next time. Anyway... That's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions, in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, 
go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Marshall Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.